As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I was dreaming about his dead mother. I was dreaming about these ghosts and the victims and the smell that was coming out of the house. That's what really opened up the whole case. It was the smell.
If you think Melbourne is going through a wacky period at the moment, with former footballers' wives being sensationally exposed on social media as lockdown dodgers, and even worse, as closet Kmart mums, and drunk, rioting, fake tradesmen laying siege to a war memorial because they're scared of needles or something, then have we got a story for you. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Many of our recent riots have started or ended outside our famous Young and Jackson's Hotel, right in the heart of Melbourne. It's connected in one way or another to many an Australian true crime story. About 150 years ago, a detective was enjoying a quiet drink at Young and Jackson's when he overheard a wine merchant talking about a very odd man he'd met on the boat over from Perth. He said that stranger's name was Baron Swanston. Apparently, the detective was what is known today as a very good operator because he realised that this Baron Swanston was in fact a man by the name of Frederick Deeming, who Victoria Police were keen to speak to about a number of grave matters. By the late 19th century, Victoria was just one of many jurisdictions around the world with outstanding warrants in Deeming's name. We're joined today by author Gary Linnell, whose new book, Devil's Work, tells the story not only of Deeming's astonishing, albeit depraved, life, but it also transports us back to a brutal time and place that's a very long way from Young and Jackson's. Gary takes us all the way to the cold and inhospitable cobbled streets of Victorian London. It's a place where sympathy is in short supply. Everyone has a hard luck story and compassion fatigue has worn holes in pockets and in shoes. Food and shelter are for people with money. It's as basic as that. For women especially, life's simple savagery could instantly flick the switch from security to destitution. They were one suddenly dead husband away from disaster at all times. Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly were just such women. They'd come to Whitechapel in London from various points around the kingdom when they'd fallen on hard times. Not all had been widowed, some had been abandoned by husbands. Some so badly beaten, they'd fled for their lives. Most were mothers, two were sex workers, and at least one of them had been the victim of human traffickers. It's not exactly sense and sensibility, is it? But it is the truth of life for women in Victorian England. In case you haven't recognised their names, these are the five canonical victims of the serial killer we know as Jack the Ripper. That just means there are probably more victims, but these are the five universally accepted. So I'm sure you're wondering what Jack the Ripper has to do with Young and Jackson's and the strange man on the boat from Perth, Frederick Deeming. Well, our guest Gary Linnell is about to weave all of these threads together and believe it or not, he has a former Australian Prime Minister to add for good measure. I told you, it's a wacky story. It's the greatest cold case of all time, really. And I think that's part of it. It's, uh, it's why it's endured for so long, that so many people feel as though they've got a stake in it um, you know, there are tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of ripperologists around the world. 
And you know what they're like. You can disappear down a rabbit hole and not emerge for days or weeks at a time because there are so many um, suspects in the case. There have been so many um, bad leads uh, and wrong leads over time that I think um, people just have just enjoyed, um, and I know it's not a great word to use, but they do enjoy dissecting this case more than just about any other great murder mystery in, in history. And why? Because, again, it's not a, a very respectful way to talk about it, but there aren't that many victims. It wasn't a, over a very long period of time. It's not like it's the only unsolved sort of serial killing case of its kind from the period even. I mean, it's I don't know why it's taken on such a legendary status. What do you think? I think because it, it sort of took place at a time. Let's go back to the autumn of, what, 1888 in London. And, and you've got the biggest city on earth, London. There are five million souls crammed into its precincts. It's quite extraordinary. There are a thousand tonnes of horse dung dropped on its streets every day. And there's this real clash, a collision going on between the old world and the new. Thomas Edison's light bulb is just emerging. There is talk of a motor car appearing on the streets at any stage. There's the phonograph. And you've got a lot of people sort of, um, you know, this crush between the old world and the new, the second industrial revolution. And then onto the streets comes this mystery killer who rips apart, literally, at least five women, possibly more. But let's just stick with those first five women who were slaughtered between September and November in 1888. It played on a lot of the fears that people in London had of the Jewish people at one stage because there were a couple of suspects who, who were Jews who were just about chased out of, out of town. Well, that's because the killer played on that anti-Semitism quite deliberately, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And also, don't forget, you can never underestimate the power of the press in this. There were like 13 or 14 yeah. daily newspapers in London, plus uh, an endless array of what they called penny dreadfuls, where you paid a penny and you and someone just rewrote what was ever what was in the newspapers at the time. But you had a mass audience now, whereas 20 or 30 years ago, the literacy levels wouldn't have been as high. But by 1888, most people could read or have something read to them. So therefore, the story of the Ripper really sort of gained a place in the public imagination. And then it went right around the world as well. I mean, it was in New York, it was in, in Melbourne and Sydney. It became this one of those first of those worldwide murder mystery cases. Yeah, okay. So yeah, the press was sort of international, I guess, for the first time. And also, can you tell us about the gin, in adverted commas, that people were drinking and sort of, we call it self-medicating now. That's not what they called it then. But I mean, this wasn't the, the gin that we partake in now, was it? What was this stuff? Oh, look, quite often you didn't even know what you were really drinking because it was prepared in the back rooms of these either DOS houses or gin houses around London. So you never knew what was the strength, what had been added to it. And quite often there are a lot of poisonous chemicals that were added to it to make it go further. So um, you had, look, alcohol was a, a very significant problem, and not just in London, but obviously elsewhere around the world at that time. And as you said, they were sort of self-medicating because what alternative did they have? They had bleak lives. They lived, if they could afford it, they managed to get a room in one of those boarding houses for the night. Otherwise, they were out on the streets. Uh, and it kept them warm. You're talking about cold nights in autumn in London in 1888. You know, misty streets too. I mean, part of the cliche of Jack the Ripper is a, you know, a large top-hatted man in a long cloak, you know, walking down a fog-strewn alleyway in London. 
That's not far from the truth. That's what some of these streets looked like. They were burning so much coal in London at the time and peat that the, the natural mists and the weather just brought these huge fogs that used to just roll down the streets and you could barely see someone in front of you. And this was what it was like throughout, you know, autumn and winter. Yeah, and so dark. A lot of us who've been to London will have done the Jack the Ripper tour and I was lucky enough to do it in winter. I remember one of the most startling elements of the tour was being told and realising just how dark the streets were. We're so used to streets being lit now by not only street lights but housing lights and just we, we don't realise how literally dark the streets were in that, you know, you really could not see your hand in front of your face in the middle of the night. We're talking about women walking around in literally pitch black when they were walking the streets in the middle of the night, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it was also the, I think, the manner, the brutal manner of these killings that, well, we're talking about a killer who not only uh, dissected his victims, but um, took out the body organs, distributed them around the room, removed their breasts, removed their ovaries. Quite staggering, even for that time. And, you know, we're still saying 1888 was still quite a brutal era. But the, I think it was just the callous nature of, of the murders themselves and the fact that you had these hapless victims that really fired people up because they also thought, well, who's next? You know, could it be me? And the press played on those fears and it got to an hysterical sort of situation in London where you had gangs roaming the streets trying to identify suspects. And there was talk, I mean, you, you didn't have a, a, a police force in London that you could actually have any confidence in. You know, detective work was in a, at its most primitive stage. The whole notion of fingerprints and forensic evidence was still 20 to 30 years later. There was a, a scientist only just come up with his theory on fingerprints that, you know, there were 60 billion different ones that you could possibly have. But that wouldn't start coming in until 1910, 1920 to most police forces. Well, actually, they were still of the opinion that if you looked closely at a victim's eyeballs, you might be able to see the last thing they saw, weren't they? Which might be the killer. Yeah, oh, Absolutely. And one of the fascinating things I came across was the Cesar Lombroso, who was this anthropologist and an Italian scientist, who by the 1880s and 1890s had become renowned around the world for his work on what he called the instinctive criminal. He'd take apart a body on the autopsy table and he'd particularly study the cranium. And if there were certain bumps and indentations, it's a little bit like phrenology, which had come before it. But he sort of tried to, he passed it off in, in sort of more science. And many people came to believe that there was such a thing as an instinctive criminal, which means effectively that you were born to it. Uh, and this really appealed to that whole class-based system that was rife throughout the UK, but also in Australia at the time too, because we'd naturally inherited you know, a lot of that sort of caste system from the mother country. So that really appealed to people as well. Now, also in the last couple of minutes, you and I have raised a couple of issues that I think we need to cover off on because I know that there are people listening who will know every detail of this case and take it very seriously. So we have to cover off on this idea that the killer was performing some very intricate surgical manoeuvres on his victims. And I've said it was pitch black sometimes. So can you I can't remember from, from my readings and, and all of that. Can you clarify for us, please, was he doing these things, such as removing organs in those situations I've described, in the darkness? 
Yeah, look, on at least two of the cases, one was a darkened room. There wouldn't have been any light apart from maybe a, a passing a little bit of moonshine. He went inside and just basically performed uh, almost what you would call a, a half autopsy and then distributed most of the internal organs around the room. There was also another victim, one of the first ones, who was found slumped against a fence in a small laneway. And she too had had her uterus and one of her breasts removed, I think, from memory. So you know, we're talking about something quite extraordinary. I mean, people were being murdered all the time and stabbed and gutted, but nothing on a level like this. And that's when one of the uh, police surgeons first examinations of the body, he came out and said, we think it's someone with surgical expertise. And that's why there was a lot of speculation both then and in the last 130 years that it might well have been a, a doctor or even a physician. One of the suspects was a physician and counsellor to Queen Victoria himself. So I mean, who knows? I think at the last count, there was more than 100 suspects that have emerged over the past century. That modus operandi has to have a lot to do with this sort of ongoing fascination, doesn't it? That is extraordinary. And I, I must ask, because I've just written a book myself about forensic pathologists who do autopsies, and I'll ask because I, I can't imagine how many people could do that, could remove organs in the dark. I know my, uh, my son's girlfriend, uh, she's a mortician. And so for the last three years, that's her job is to take bodies when they're delivered to the morgue and then to sort of restore them so that the family can come in and see them. And I've often said to her, how do you do that? Because that involves removal of organs and it just involves basically dealing with dead people, which 99% of us just, we just know we don't want to go near. And she said, look, she's never had a queasy stomach about it. But to her, it's just a bit of science. Could she do it in the dark, Gary? That's my question. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask her that the next time I talk, I have a chat to her. But I suspect <laughs> she probably, after a few years, like, you know, surgeons, they have all the, the great techniques at their disposal now. They've got, you know, microscopes and cameras going inside the body. But a very good surgeon can still, and they often talk about it, can still do it by feel. And I think, you know, that's obviously something that we need to apply to the Jack the Ripper case. Yeah. I guess. I just don't want anyone operating on me, though, who wants to do it by feel. Please don't try it out on me. <laughs> Coming up on Australian True Crime, we hear about the strange man who decided to make a new life for himself here in the colony. We hear about another man who would be Prime Minister, and you won't believe what that guy and his wife were into. Thank you to patrons Katie O'Rourke, Sarah Fox, Cherise Addington, Mary Briggs, Dahls and Paul Puckridge. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're joined by Gary Linnell, whose new book, Devil's Work, tells the story of an international fugitive captured in Melbourne in 1892, who some believed was Jack the Ripper. Yes, his name is Frederick Beeming, and there was a, a time there in about 1892 when he was the most despised man in the world. So we're talking about four years after the Jack the Ripper killings. Frederick Deeming was a very, very strange man. He grew up uh, in Lancashire. He went to sea at a very young age. He was deeply affected by the death of his mother. He was called Mad Fred as a kid because he talked to himself a lot. He had a very brutal father. His father was a whitesmith. What's that mean? He was a whitesmith. So instead, like a blacksmith uses heavy metals and will create anchors for ships and things like that. A whitesmith does little tin cups, a lot more of the finesse work, uh, and they use mainly tin. But he was mad, his father, and the mother was pretty mad as well. We know that. Father used to beat him up a lot. Everyone in the family became increasingly concerned about him because he was quite eccentric and he'd wear clothes as though he was getting dressed for a funeral. He claimed to have seen his mother's ghost floating outside the window and he'd travel the world. He'd come back, tell outrageous stories of what he's been doing, claiming to have fought in in fights and battles um, in South Africa and uh, across the Indian subcontinent. And then he'd vanish again and he'd jump on board a ship. We do know for a time that he spent about uh, three or four months in a hospital in Calcutta where he was treated for a severe case of epilepsy. He later went home. He, he married a woman called Marie, a Welsh woman, and brought her out to Australia in 1882. And he was jailed pretty quickly after. He was working as a plumber and he stole all these gas fittings and he was put in uh, Darlinghurst Jail for six weeks. After they got out, he, they went up to Brisbane got into strife there, went back to Sydney, got into more trouble, ended up becoming bankrupt and served two weeks for a contempt of court. And then he took his family. He By then he had three children. He was a notorious womanizer. He used to travel the streets of Sydney chatting up barmaids. They were his specialty. And he would often bestow uh, stolen jewellery on them to try and win their affections. Meanwhile, his poor old wife was stuck at home with the children and knowing that she was married to this you know, part-time petty thief, so they went off to South Africa. It's very blurry about how long they spent their time there, but there's no doubt that he went off and committed several big financial scams, ripping off banks and mining companies, uh, and then turned up in England in 1890 with a lion cub at his side that he oh. claimed that he had he had rescued from a cave after he killed its parents with his bare hands. I mean, this is the sort of thing. And there was a one of the uh, the big menageries, which was like a zoo in Liverpool at the time, uh, bought it off him and uh, promoted it as the uh, as the lion that uh, this Frederick Deeming had uh, saved uh, with his bare hands uh, over in Africa. 
But he was also, to add to his crimes, a swindler, con man. He was a shocking bigamist as well. He couldn't help himself with women. And so we know that he married at least three and possibly four women, and there were po probably more, uh, while he was still married to his first wife. Uh, he ended up in Hull Prison for nine months uh, in Yorkshire, and then uh, when he was released, he, he turned up in the town of Rainhill under an assumed name of Albert Williams, and there he uh, proposed to a young girl, Emily Lydia Mather, and uh, while he was wooing her, his first wife and four kids turned up oh. at the rented house in Rainhill. So he explained to everyone else that, oh, that's my sister and her four children, and they're only staying for a few days. And indeed, they only stayed for a few days. They were never seen again. He then marries this second woman, Emily Mather, takes her out to Australia, kills her on Christmas Eve of 1891 or in the early hours of Christmas morning, uh, and buries her body. He, he caves her head in with an axe and then slits her throat quite expertly and then buries her beneath the hearthstone of a fireplace in the second bedroom of this rented house in Windsor, 57 Andrew Street in Windsor. Quite a famous house now. And then he takes off. He proposes to another woman on a, on a ship to Sydney and she says yes and agrees that she'll meet him in a small mining town over in Southern Cross in WA. But just before she leaves to go and meet him there, where, by the way, he's already ordered a big barrel of cement, he is arrested and brought back to Australia. By the time he's arrested, the body of his first wife and four children are discovered in that small rented villa in Rainhill in the UK. Oh. He had murdered them before marrying you know, his next wife. He cut their throats and then took them down, buried them in a small concrete tomb beneath the kitchen floor of this rented villa and then he put more cement over it. So that was his modus operandi, basically. So by the time of 1892 in March, April, when he's arrested and taken back to Melbourne to stand trial for the murder of his, his second wife, he has become a notorious figure. Uh, it's front page news on the, on the uh, New York Times, front page news in all the papers in Australia and back in London as well. So you've got three continents who are basically obsessed with this story. And uh, his trial is spectacular. You know, he claims that uh, he was urged to kill by the ghost of his dead mother. He used to wake him up at two o'clock every morning. He's defended during his court trial by Alfred Deakin who is about to go on to become a Prime Minister of Australia and the key driver of our constitution. Now, Deacon is a confirmed spiritualist. He believes that you can speak to the dead at seances, as does his wife. Is that his attraction to this case? Why is he defending this guy? We think it's highly likely that he took it, A, because Deacon, his family have just lost their fortune. There's been a collapse in the property market in Melbourne. They've lost 300 pounds of their investment, which in today's terms, it'd be at well over a million dollars. Uh, and they've lost it all. So he has to go back and, and end his career as an aspiring politician in the Victorian colonial parliament and go back to the law. So he's practising as a barrister. He's offered the chance to represent Frederick Deeming. Deeming's broke, so there's unlikely to be any uh, money out of it. But he probably thinks, well, this will get my name back in the newspapers as well. <laughs> Deeming, on the other hand, suddenly finds himself with a barrister and also a lawyer who's also a confirmed spiritualist, by the way, because Melbourne and Sydney 
at this time and most of the other cities around the country were hotbeds of spiritualism. This quasi-religious sort of movement that believed in an afterlife and also that you could contact those spirits in the afterlife. So if you lost, you know, your, your parents or you lost a dear friend, you could sit down at the Ouija board on Saturday night in the parlour or the drawing room of your home, get your friends around, and you could communicate with the dead. It was incredible. And, like, we look back on that time now and go, well, that's ridiculous. But these people had really turned to spiritualism in the same way, I think, that many people were obsessed with Jack the Ripper because it came at a time when society was sort of being confronted by all of this new science. There were a lot of doubts about traditional religion. And so suddenly you've got this sort of hotbed of spiritualism in Melbourne. So it ends up creating this perfect storm. And you, I, came, I ended up coming across this story, which I only knew about very vaguely. I mean, I never knew it. I was never taught about it in school. But the fact that you've got a future Prime Minister of Australia who believes he can speak to the dead, having uh, defending a serial killer who is claiming that he's haunted by the ghost of his dead mother, uh, I'm sorry, but I find that really interesting, and I think most people will. Was this around the same time that spiritualism was really big in England and the States? I've read stories of these women who held seances and were very, very popular, and they went to lengths such as swallowing fabric like muslin so that then during the seance they could regurgitate it and pretend that it was spiritual matter. Matter. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. They would do that. They would also have um, uh, used mirrors to project light. Mm. They would have artificial limbs in many cases where they could stretch out their arm or the leg and pretend that someone else's uh, you know, thumb or, or footprint was uh, being laid on your hand. Mm-hmm. Quite spooky. And they had a, a captive audience because people wanted to believe in this. Yeah. They wanted to know that there was something beyond the grave and spiritualism sort of addressed all of those sort of concerns. And Queen Victoria was a huge fan of spiritualism. Yeah, she'd lost her husband, I think, in the 1870s, and she used to communicate or allegedly communicate with him during seances as well. I guess in those days people were losing people very young too. I mean, you know, infant mortality was still really high. There were a lot of wars still. People were losing young sons, and maybe that accounts for some of it. And don't underestimate the role that women played in the spiritual movement. It was actually started by two two young girls in New York State back in 1848 who claimed that they'd heard some weird knocking sounds on their floor and then their floor and they thought it was the body of someone who'd been murdered and killed and buried beneath the house. They they fooled their mother and they ended up going on tour. This is Maggie Fox and Kate Fox and they became famous throughout the United States for the second half of the 18th century. But women were regarded as creatures in the Victorian era. You know this. They were sensitive creatures. Women. We are. Incredibly sensitive and more open to sort of mystical forces than us brutal you know, basic primitive men. We we are, we are. (laughs) So uh, that's why a lot of these women became mediums. You know, they would sort of run the the, the seance and they communicate with the spirits. They could do voice projection. Some of them, some of them like Alfred Deacon's wife, Patty, would actually were writing mediums. So the spirit would take over their hand and they'd end up writing, you know, long screeds telling everyone what the afterlife was like. So it's just a wonderful world, you know, with this this collision between science, superstition and religion all taking place at this sort of critical time in Australian history. 
One of the key characters in the book is a guy called Sidney Dickinson, and he's an art professor who has toured the world. He arrives in Melbourne. He's also a correspondent for the New York Times, and he takes a great interest in the story of Frederick Deeming and comes to believe that he could be Jack the Ripper. Um, and he visits Frederick Deeming in jail just before he's due to be hanged. And he takes his wife along. Sydney's wife is called Marion. And guess what? She's a palm reader and also a spirit medium. And she's hot, but really into it. And they take a plaster cast of Frederick's hand uh, while he's in his death cell waiting to be hanged uh, and take it home so that they can study all of the lines of his hand and his palm to see uh, when his criminal career began and whether or not they can sort of elicit more sort of secrets from that. And he writes stories for the front page of the New York Times talking about deeming being, you know, the most hated man in the world, that his crimes by killing his first wife and four children and his second wife and probably a few others uh, link him very closely to the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper. So you've got this incredibly vivid sort of imagination of this journalist there as well. And it all sort of comes together in, in the, what is one of the most spectacular trials of the late 19th century. Wow. So even then, even at the time, there were people making that link because now with the inclusion of profiling, the question of why Jack the Ripper suddenly stopped killing has entered the mix. Well, one of the things that links Deeming to the Ripper case is that he was examined by three doctors during his trial and was said to be suffering from syphilis. Now, he told them that he had contracted it from a prostitute and that when he had returned to London, he'd gone around London on many nights with a gun and a knife looking for that woman who gave it to him so he could exact revenge. Ah. And there is a, a certain medical condition called neurosyphilis, which is when the syphilitic brain uh, reaches its later stages. And if it's a man who's suffering from it, can develop a pathological hatred for women. And this is what kind of linked. Plus, one of the victims, Catherine Eddowes, who was a, uh, I think she was 44, 45 years old. It's unsubstantiated, but then so much of this stuff back then is, is unsubstantiated. But there are claims that she had been corresponding with Deeming and had known him and that he had shown someone a letter that he had once received from her during the 1880s. So it suggests that he had some familiarity with one of the victims. There's also a woman who approached the um, London World newspaper and told them that during the autumn of 88, when the Jack the Ripper murders were being committed, she was being courted by a man who exactly matched Frederick Deeming's description. He had a huge, huge moustache. It looked like a theatre curtain that sort of dropped over his top lip. It was a massive, disgusting-looking thing, actually. But he was very proud of this because, you know, part of the 19th century for men was facial hair. It was a, a sign of masculinity. And she said that he had been wooing her in London at the time of several of the key killings. And she uh, was quite concerned about him because he so showed a morbid interest in the killings and seemed to have a lot more information and knew a lot more about the killings than what, even what the newspapers did. And so she told the newspaper about him. So from there, you ended up with people drawing the dots and figuring out, well, maybe this guy is the Ripper and he ended up emigrating to Australia in 1891. And that's why they could never locate him in London. How was his behaviour and demeanour during his imprisonment and during the trial in Melbourne? 
Oh, look, during the trial, he, he right, there was an inquest before the trial and he was incredibly aggressive during the inquest, was yelling at the witnesses, punched one of the uh, witnesses as he was being led from the courtroom. Uh, and then when the trial began, he had completely changed his personality. He looked like a clergyman sort of sipping tea, discussing that morning sermon with everyone until the final day. And just before the jury was about to be sent off to come up with its verdict. You know, the candles in the courtroom were being worn down to just a small nub. It was growing dark and Deeming stood up and for the first time in the trial demanded to be heard and he ended up giving this 50-minute monologue, which was bizarre, where he talked about, he looked around the room and said, I've never seen an uglier race of people oh. than I have in, in, in Melbourne. Now, this trial was sensational. There were... Tens of thousands of people on the streets every day. They were you know, knee-deep on the footpaths outside the Supreme Court and all of them jostling for position, trying to get themselves a ticket because they were ticketed affairs and you needed a ticket from the sheriff's office to be able to get inside. But interestingly, the newspapers could not believe the number of young single women who wanted to attend the trial. You know, yet again, there was this idea that women should not be allowed to hear you know, gruesome evidence and, you know, the sort of the nature of these grisly crimes because they were such sensitive creatures. Uh, and they tut-tutted a lot about this in the newspapers. They couldn't believe that these... And the suggestion was that these were so-called loose women <laughs> who, were attract, who were attracted to Demi because of his notoriety. A little like, I guess, um, the way that we still see women writing to prisoners on death row in the United States and sometimes marrying them without even meeting them, you know. It's a, it's a weird phenomenon, that, isn't it? It is, but, I mean, there's a lot of that in Australia as well. I've, I've, we've spoken to women and spoken to authors of books about that, women who write to prisoners in Australia and, and marry them, absolutely. Why? Is there a redemptive issue to it? Do they think that they can redeem them or save them? Well, there's a lot of conversation around the fact that the the correspondence and the attention that they get from these men is intoxicating because the men have very little else to do and think about when they're in prison but the woman. And so their attention is really full on and romantic. Unfortunately, if and when they ever tend to get out of jail, it, it doesn't tend to be the same. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very different situation generally. So I, I, as, a, as a guy, I don't understand that because I'm just saying this because my wife's just around the corner. <laughs> I devote 100% of my time and effort towards her. Of course her. you do. You know, she is the, she's the only thing I need to worry about Great. every moment of the day. Right? Now I've said that. I, let's move on. Well, imagine if you were in jail, <laughs> how much more time you would have to devote to writing her love letters. Imagine that. If I hadn't said that, I definitely would be locked away somewhere, let me tell you. <laughs> that, the other thing, one, one, I, thought, I think I should explain too that Frederick Deeming, one of, this is, I found this um, fascinating. I thought, this is the 19th century, how can a guy like Frederick Deeming, who doesn't really have that much money, manage to sail around the world all the time? Like he was constantly on the move. There are reports he may have been in Nova Scotia. He ended up in the United States at one stage. He was in New Zealand. He travelled the globe. One story I read in your book reminded me of a few stories I've heard recently myself about Tinder dates. One lady he married, did he? And then literally said, I'm going out for milk or something. I'm going out for a walk and never came back. And like got on a, did he get on a boat or a? No, no, he got a train. He got on a train and left the country. Went to London. No, he was in Hull. He just married yeah. this woman. And the, he knew the authorities were closing in on him. Plus, 
he'd sort of uh, run out of money and he'd been taking jewellery from a jewellery store and said, I'd pay you on Monday. Well, on Sunday, he disappeared, jumped on a train, went to London and then had pre-booked a berth on a ship going to Europe. Oh, my God. Because the, the thinking was they didn't have an extradition treaty with the UK. I'll get to Uruguay, live in Montevideo for a while, and then I'll be able to come up with another, you know, alias, and off I'll go again and commit the same schemes that I've been doing. Unfortunately... This poor lady is waiting yeah. for him to come home, but then I thought, oh, I'm an idiot. She's not the poor one. She's the lucky one. No, he sent her to the uh, dining room and ordered her a pot of tea and said, I'm going down to get a haircut. I'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> Never saw him again. And he would, he ended up spending like six months in Uruguay where he was arrested and um, ended up, he didn't know this, but there was an extradition treaty with the UK. It had just been finalised. So the police sent um, one of their officers out there, picked him up, took him back by ship to London and then on to Hull where he was put on trial and he was jailed uh, for nine months. But even then... Uh, he began um, honing one of his great gifts, which was his epilepsy. And he'd start collapsing in fits and frothing at the mouth. And many people were suspicious about this. And one day the uh, whole governor, the, pre- the governor of the prison, marched into his cell with a guard and said, right, you check him, I'm checking the mattress and underneath the bed. And so he kept feeling his way along under the bed, on the bed frame, and there it was, three or four small, tiny bits of soap. So what Deeming would do is he'd swallow a a small ball of soap that would help him start frothing at the mouth even more, leave a bad taste in your mouth, but never mind. If you're trying to go to that length, you don't really mind that taste. And uh, he'd sort of fake uh, so he could get moved from his cell into the hospital wing where the food was better the care was better and there was more chance of an escape as well. Blokes have been known to chop their ears off to do a similar thing, so swallowing soap's probably not that bad. They have indeed, haven't they? It's incredible. It's incredible that he ever faced any consequences at all, really. He was so skilled by that time at slipping through nets. So he really did. He sat in a courtroom in Melbourne and he faced some consequences. Uh, and so what happened? Well, he was, he was found guilty. Um, he, uh, Alfred Deakin, the, the future Prime Minister of Australia, he was his barrister. He pleaded uh, not guilty due to insanity because of this whole claim that his dead mother was urging him to kill these women. Uh, but... Um, the jury came back and said, no, nah, guilty as hell, uh, hanged. And the colony of Victoria at the time were, were shocked by the scandalous nature, not only of the crime, but the notoriety that it gained around the world. They thought it was the worst publicity for Melbourne ever because Melbourne had prided itself on being this glittering jewel in the Southern Hemisphere. And apart from the massive stink that hung over the city because of the lack of a sewerage system, they thought it was a a beautiful town and it had been corrupted by the presence of Frederick Deeming. So three weeks after the trial, he was led onto the gallows at the Melbourne jail and they put a noose around his neck. The trap door opened. He plummeted through it, and I love this line from the Bulletin magazine. They said, Frederick Deeming, for the first time in his life, had gone straight. No! Straight through the trap Straight through the great line, straight through the trap door. Uh, he, was, he was, a plaster cast was made of his head, as they did back then, a, a death mask. Uh, and then he was buried in the burial area of Melbourne Jail and you know, interred with limestone to help the body decompose quicker. And in about the 1920s, there were uh, a lot of works going on at the Melbourne jail within its precincts and these workmen came across the old boneyard 
and you know Ned Kelly's bones were there and Frederick Deeming was buried apparently right next to Kelly and their bones ended up being jumbled together and put in sacks and some of them were stolen and though what was retrieved was actually handed over to several scientists of the era and then became this sort of murky world where they were sort of handed on to different people or people thought that they owned Ned Kelly's skull or the skull of Deeming and everyone got them sort of mixed up and it was only uh, about 2014 that a lot of forensic testing was actually done and it confirmed that it wasn't Kelly's skull and it wasn't Deeming's skull. So I sort of conclude the book by saying, you know, um, Frederick Deeming would probably be pleased with himself 135, 140 years um, after his birth. He, uh, his whereabouts remain unknown. Thank you to our guest, Gary Linnell, author of Devil's Work, which is available now. There's a link in our show notes to help you get your copy. Thank you to our patrons, Sandra, Brooke, Sue, Tilly Larkham, Amanda Robinson, Renee Toddy. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.